Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles now to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, we've been working our way through the book of Romans for uh, several months now, and uh, we have come to Romans chapter 9, verses 19 to 23. That'll be our text that I'll read for us here in just a moment. But as we get started, I I want us to think about um, a wedding. What happens on a wedding day? One of the most significant moments of any wedding day is the moment when the couple stands face to face before God and a room full of witnesses and they make vows to one another to stay faithful to one another in sickness and in health, whether they are rich or poor, as long as they both shall live. And They make those vows to one another, not so much for the good times as for the bad times, right? It's easy to stay married. It's easy to be faithful to one another when things are going well and when you're both happy and enjoying each other's company. In those moments, you don't really have to think about your vows very much. It's it's easy to love each other and, and serve one another. But when your marriage is hard, and happiness wanes, and you're both driving each other a little crazy, those are the times when you need your vows to remind you what you promised to help you to stick it out and to work through it. We can say the same thing, or at least a similar thing, about believing that the whole Bible is true. Those of us who are Christians, we believe 2 Timothy 3.16, which says that all Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness. That's easy to say and to believe when you're thinking about the verses in the Bible that you want to hear, like, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. It's not hard to say. I believe that's God's Word. I believe that's true. It's not hard to believe verses like Romans 8.1 that says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Who doesn't want to believe that? We all want to believe that. That's good news. But there are parts of the Bible that are harder for us to hear and harder for us to accept. We might think of some of the words that Jesus said. If anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. That's a little bit harder to hear. It's a little bit harder to do. But we cannot cross out or ignore the parts of the Bible that we don't like or that we find difficult. If we are going to say that we believe that all of the Bible is true, that means we need to be prepared to listen to all of the Bible and to hear all the Bible, even the parts that make us uncomfortable. And I say that because I think the paragraph that we have come to today in our study of Romans may be the most difficult paragraph in the whole Bible. Not the most difficult to understand. There are harder passages to understand. In fact, I think this paragraph is pretty easy to understand. Uh, I think it's pretty easy to make out what it's saying. But it may be the most difficult to accept and to believe and to 
try to get our mind around. So let me read for us these verses. And and as I'm reading them, see if you can follow Paul's train of thought. And and don't think at first, do I like what this is saying? Do Do I agree with what this is saying? Think first, do I understand what I'm pretty sure Paul is saying? Here's Romans 9, verses 19 to 23. Paul says, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? To make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Now, as I have said before, as we have worked our way through Romans chapter 9, I'm trying to explain and teach and preach these verses as faithfully as I can, just like I would with any other passage of Scripture. Uh, but I don't expect everybody to agree with the way that I'm explaining these verses. These are, this is a controversial chapter. Christians disagree on how to interpret these verses, and they have for a long time. And so if you, um, you know, hear the way I explain these verses and you say, I don't think that's what that means. I, I think there's a different way to explain that. I'm okay with that. That doesn't hurt my feelings. You're not offending me. I'm not expecting everybody to agree with me. But I, I've got to preach them the, old, the way I know how, right? The, the way that I um, have understand them as, as best as I can. But what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to walk away from these verses and say, I don't agree with those verses. Right? Do, you, do you see the difference? Disagreeing with me is not the same as disagreeing with the Bible, because I'm trying to interpret the Bible and explain the Bible and tell you what I think it means. But you might think that this passage means something a little bit different than what I say, and that's okay, right? Because we can both be Christians, we can be friends, we can be members of the same church, and you can disagree over what certain passages say. But what I don't want you to do is say, I don't agree with what Paul says. That, that's not something that we're allowed as Christians to do. If we agree that all Scripture is breathed out by God, we have to agree with what the Bible says. Right, so what I want you to do, not only today, but I hope you're doing this all the time, is what the Bereans did when Paul came and preached to them. We read about this in Acts chapter 17. It says, They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Paul came and preached. He was explaining to them why he believed that Jesus was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament scriptures. He explained that to them and they said, hmm, let's, let's, let's check that out for ourselves. And they studied the scriptures alongside of what Paul was saying to see if what Paul was saying about Jesus was true, if he really was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. I hope that whenever you hear anybody preach or teach that what you're thinking is not hey, this guy's really persuasive, or this is, sounds really good and interesting, I like what he has to say, I'm going to go along with it. I hope what you're asking is, 
Is he explaining the Bible correctly? Is what, he's, is what he's saying, does it fit with the rest of the Bible? Is this square with the rest of Scripture? That's what we always ought to be doing, whoever we're reading or listening to. And so that's what I hope that you'll be doing as we work through these verses as well. So let's dig in, at starting in verse 19. The question that Paul raises here, and Paul loves to do this, right? He loves to make a point and then raise a question and then answer that question. The, Paul, the question he raises here in verse 19 is this. You will say to me then, why does he, that is, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, the reason why he raises that question is because of what he just said in verses 14 to 18. In that passage, he quoted two passages, two verses from the Old Testament, one that God spoke to Moses and one that God spoke to Pharaoh. And the first one is in verse 15. He said to Moses, I will show mercy uh, to whom I will show mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, he says to Moses, I don't have to show mercy to anyone. Moses had just asked the Lord to show him his glory. And God essentially says, Moses, I don't have to do this for you. It's up to me if I want to give you this grace, this gift, this mercy. I'm going to. But know that you can't force me to. Know that I don't owe it to you. And in the second passage, Paul quotes there in verse 17, where God says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. In other words, Pharaoh, I chose you, I put you in this position of, of, as king over Egypt, so that I could send all these plagues against you, so that people would hear about how powerful I am, and so that my name would spread to all the earth. So, Paul draws this conclusion from those two passages in verse 18. He says, So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. If he wants to harden Pharaoh, he can. If he wants to show mercy to Pharaoh, he can. And of course, this goes back to things Paul was saying earlier about Jacob and Esau and Isaac and Ishmael. God can choose Jacob and give him the blessings that he promised to Abraham, and he can leave Esau without the blessings. He can pass the blessings on to Isaac as the son of promise and not on to Ishmael. He is free to do that. No one can constrain him. No one can compel him or force him to show mercy or give a blessing to anyone in particular. And Paul knows when we hear that, at least some of us are going to think, wait a minute. If God can do that, then why does he still find fault with someone like Pharaoh? Why why is Pharaoh still in trouble for resisting God if God hardened Pharaoh's heart? After all, if God decides to harden Pharaoh's heart, what can Pharaoh do about it? Who can resist his will is the way that Paul puts it there in verse 19. Have you ever asked these questions yourself as you think about what it means for God to be God and Him to be sovereign and in control and and everything be under His will, His power, His plan? How does that work then? 
how, how can how can God? Here's how we, we put it sometimes. How can God be in control of everything, and we still be accountable for our actions, or, or still be held responsible for what we do? If God's sovereign, if God's in control, if He has mercy on whom He has mercy, and He hardens whom He hardens, then how can we still be held accountable by or, or for the things that we do? Well, Paul is not caught off guard or surprised by that question. He expects us to ask that question. That's why he raises it in verse 19. And then he answers it in verses 20 to 23. So here's the first part of his answer. The first part of his answer in verse 21 is, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Don't forget who you are and who you're talking to. Is the first thing that Moses said. It's very similar that Paul says. It's very similar to how God responded to Job. That's how I read that passage earlier. Remember, Job was a righteous man. He was a godly man. But he lost his family. He lost his possessions. He lost his health. Even though he had not done anything to deserve those things. And throughout the book of Job, uh, his friends, of course, are trying to give him counsel. Most of it, not very good. Not very helpful. And Job is, is complaining and saying, I, essentially, I wish that I could stand before God and bring my case before him because Job didn't feel like he had been treated fairly. And eventually, Job gets his wish. God shows up in the whirlwind and speaks to Job. And the first thing God says to Job is, who is this? that darkens counsel, uh, darkens counsel by words without knowledge. And he proceeds to say to Job, do you know how to do the things that I do? do? Do you know how to govern the universe, Job? Do you know how to control the weather? Do you know how to make sure that the constellations are in their proper place at the proper time? Do you know how to govern the world? You, you're old, Job. You've been around for a long time. Surely, you know, do you know how to make sure the sun rises at the right time and the right place every day? You sure act like you know a lot. You think you've got questions you want me to answer. I've got some questions for you. And after a barrage of questions like that from God, Job says... I, th- I thought I knew you, but really I had just heard of you. Now I have seen you and I repent in dust and ashes. I-, I don't know what I was thinking. And so the first thing Paul does is sort of put us in the same place as Job. And he says, you better, you better watch out. Because you can cross a line where you start to think that God owes you an answer for everything you want to know or owes you an answer for all the things that he says he does. And he doesn't owe you an answer. He doesn't have to explain everything to you. He doesn't have to justify all that he does to you because he's God and you're not. He is the creator and you are the creation. So then he says... In the second part of verse 20, he says, Will what is molded say to its molder, 
Why have you made me like this? If God is the potter, God is the molder, and we are the clay, we are the thing that God molds, we're the creation, right? He's the creator. Does the creation get to look back at the creator and say, hey, what's this all about? Why did you do this? If you, if you cut down a tree and you have it cut into lumber and you decide to use that beautiful lumber to make a feed trough, does the lumber get to say, hey, I, I'm pretty enough to be a rocking chair. Right? Maybe it's a feed trough? Are you kidding me? I'm gonna be, they're going to make a mess out of me. That would be ridiculous, right? The, the creation doesn't get to object to the creator about what the creator decided to make out of it. In the same way, he says, we have been molded by God. He's the molder, and we don't get to object to what he makes out of us, to what he does with us. Right? Verse 21, he expands on this image. He says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Can't the potter do that if he wants to? Is the potter obligated to make anything in particular out of a lump of clay? No. Does the clay get to say to the potter, what you ought to do is, or how come you did this? I want you to explain to me why. No. The potter can take the same lump of clay... And he can take a portion of it and fashion it into a chamber pot, something for dishonorable use. And he can take part of it and form it into something he's going to place on the dinner table, something for honorable use. That's his prerogative. That's his right. He's God. He's the creator. He gets to do what he wants, what he plans because he's good and he's wise, right? As we're thinking about these things, we can't, we can't sort of um, ignore all the other things we know to be true about God, right? So as you're thinking about God being free to do what he wants, don't forget that the God who's free to do what he wants is the God who also said to Moses, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's the same God we're talking about. So he's wise, and he's gracious, and he's merciful, and he's faithful. But if, if the God who is gracious and merciful and faithful can't also be the God who hardens Pharaoh's heart, then, then you've just torn apart the book of Exodus, not to mention the rest of the Bible. Right? We, not, we may not be able to get our minds around how God can do all that and be all that, but that doesn't mean that he isn't and that he can't. I, again, as I said, I, I feel like that, so through Romans 9, starting about verse 6, Paul has been taking us paragraph by paragraph deeper and deeper into the mysterious 
ways of God. He talked about how he gave his promises to Isaac and not to Ishmael. And how not all Israel is Israel. Not all who are descended from Abraham are the children of promise. And then he talked about Jacob and Esau. And how before they were born or had done anything good or bad. He told Rebekah, their mother, that the older would serve the younger. And then he talked about... um, The passage we've been focusing on, verse 14 to 18, right about hardening Pharaoh's heart and showing mercy to whom he will. It took us even a little bit deeper. And now now in verses 19 to 23, this is is as deep as it goes. And when you get to something in the Bible where God takes you as as deep as he'll take you, whether it's on how God works in showing mercy and hardening, or whether it's on the doctrine of the Trinity, or what, when He takes you as deep as He is going to take you, so at sometimes, at some point, you just have to throw up your hands and say, I, there's only so much about that I can explain. There's only so much about that I can understand. There comes a point where I just have to say, I believe God can do that. I believe what God says, but I don't know that I understand it all. And that's okay. Right? If we worshipped a God we could completely and fully understand, He would probably not be the real God, but a God that we created in our own minds. A God who is greater than us, it makes sense there's going to be some things about Him that we can't get our minds around. So, again, Paul's taking us as, as deep as the Bible takes us into these things, and it's, it's not easy to get our minds around all of this. But, I want to draw your attention to one thing in particular that he says in verse 21 that I think is helpful for us to focus on. He says, Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one vessel for dishonorable use? What's the significance of Paul saying he made them out of the same lump? I think what he's highlighting for us there is that before God does something with us, there's really not much different about us in the big scheme of things. And what I mean by that is this. All of us are made in the image of God. All people who exist are created by God and were created in the image of God. Also, all people, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, all people are born with a sin nature. Right? David says in Psalm 51, verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not talking about his mother sinning when he was conceived. He's talking about from the moment I was conceived. I, I, I was conceived in sin. I have a sin nature. Because Adam fell, all of us come into the world fallen. None of us come in neutral. None of us come in perfect. We don't all start out fresh like Adam because of Adam's Sin, we all come into the world with a sin nature. That's why Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says that to those of us who are Christians, Paul says, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And he goes on to say, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love of which he loved us, he saved us, he raised us, etc. But before that, 
all of us were sinners and we were dead in our sin and we were following sinful ways just like everybody else, Paul says. So all people, ever since Adam and Eve, we are all both made in the image of God, but also fallen creatures. And that means that none of us deserve or are owed blessing, salvation, mercy, grace, any of those things. God does not owe that to any of us. If God had wanted to, he could have let everybody die in their sin and go to hell. He did not have to save anyone. He did not have to send Jesus to die on the cross in our place for our sin and rise again so that we can have eternal salvation. He didn't have to do that. Part of what makes it so amazing and so wonderful is that it is a free gift that He did not owe us. If it was an obligation, or if we start to think of it as an obligation, we think, well, of course God forgave me. That's what God does. Of course God saved me. That's what God does. That's not the attitude that the Bible encourages us to have, right? The Bible encourages us to be amazed and in awe and overflowing with joy and gratitude for all that God has done for us, all the grace that He has given to us. Why? Because we didn't deserve it. Because He didn't owe it to us. That, If we get that in our minds, then it's not as hard to understand the whole thing with Jacob and Esau and with Moses and Pharaoh. Did God treat Pharaoh or Esau unfairly? Did he give them something? Did he, did he treat them in a way that they didn't deserve? In, in the negative sense, right? Did, was he teach them, did he treat them worse than they deserved? No. He treated Moses and Jacob better than they deserved. If God leaves somebody alone, leaves them in their sin, leaves them in their rebellion. He's not done anything wrong. He doesn't have to do anything else. But when he says, despite your sin, despite your rebellion, you're going to be mine. I'm going to love you and I'm going to save you and I'm going to cleanse you and I'm going to make you new. That is grace and mercy and blessing that's undeserved. Right, so Paul can make one, Paul says God can make one part of that lump into a vessel for dishonorable use, and he doesn't do anything wrong to that part of the lump. What's amazing is that he takes another part of that lump of clay and fashions, fashions it into something for honorable use, even though it's a broken piece of clay, if we can say it that way, that he's starting out with but he fashions it into something good. Now, let's move on to um, verses 23 and 24. Here's the second part of his answer. The first part of his answer is, look, he's God and you're not. And you need to reckon with that. Remember what that means. The second part of his answer is, what if God has a really good reason for what he's doing? What if God has a really good reason for the way he treated Pharaoh and the way he treated Moses? What, what if it's part of one big, perfect plan? And here's how he describes that, verse 22. What if God, 
desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So we might ask, why does God do it this way? Why not save everybody? Why not save everybody? Why doesn't God do that? I mean, God's powerful enough. He could save everybody, in theory, if he wanted to. Why doesn't he? Why does he harden Pharaoh? Why not save Pharaoh too? Why does he choose Jacob and not Esau? Why not choose them both? Why not save everybody? Well, here's what God is doing. Verse 22 says, part of what God is doing is He desires to make known His power and to show His wrath. He wants us to see that He truly does hate sin, that He really is holy, that He really is just. And yet at the same time, in verse 23, He wants to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. He wants us to see how He overflows with mercy and grace and kindness and patience and love. He wants us, in other words, to see the full gamut of His glory. See all of His character put on display. How is he going to do that? He's going to do that by patiently enduring the vessels of wrath which are prepared for destruction, those who will experience God's wrath and judgment because of their sin and rebellion against God who will get what they deserve. He's going to do that on the one hand, but then on the other hand, to those He has prepared beforehand for glory who don't deserve this, but whom He has been merciful and gracious and loving and faithful toward, they will see the riches of that glory, these vessels of mercy, which God has prepared them for beforehand. And He's done it that way because we can't see and know and experience the riches of God's grace and mercy unless there is a backdrop of wrath and justice. If everybody gets something special, it feels like nobody got anything special, right? If everybody's saved, salvation doesn't feel like a big deal. If everybody's forgiven, if everybody gets the same grace, if everybody ends up in the same place at the end, well, that's just what God did. That's just what God apparently owed us. It's what it feels like, what it would seem like. But that's not how God has done it. It is against the backdrop of the wrath that the unrepentant and rebellious will experience that those who receive God's merciful salvation see how great and wonderful and amazing 
His grace really is. Now, that doesn't make us comfortable with the fact that some people are vessels of wrath. That doesn't make us you know, blasé about the fact that some people are going to experience God's judgment. We don't want that for anybody. I, uh, Sarah and I were talking last Sunday morning after, uh, or Sunday afternoon after last Sunday's sermon about just how difficult some of the stuff in Romans 9 is. And uh, one of the things that she reminded me of as we were talking about that was what makes uh, this chapter so difficult um, for Christians is not what it means for us, right? Because if you're saved, though some of the things in here are hard to understand, the ultimate point for you is, is good news, right? You're saved. You've received God's mercy. You've, you know, God has loved you, chosen you, forgiven you, etc. What makes it hard is thinking about the people who we know who are not saved and wondering if they ever will be. And if they're not, what that means. That, that's the part that's hard to think about. So, so what do we do with that? Right, when we read verse 22 and 23 and say, okay, if this is how God is doing it. He's got some vessels of wrath and some vessels of mercy. And the vessels of wrath are going to experience judgment. And part of God's purpose in that is for the vessels of mercy to get to really see and understand how great His mercy and love and faithfulness and grace are? How do I reconcile that with the, the grief and anguish in my heart that I feel over people I know that aren't saved and I'm, I, I don't know if they ever will be? What do I do with that? What we do with that is remember that the same Paul who wrote verses 22 and 23 is the same Paul who wrote verse 2 of this chapter. Where he said, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Because of my kinsmen according to the flesh who, are, who have rejected the Messiah, who are not saved. And that's the same Paul who wrote chapter 10, verse 1, where he says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I don't know which ones of them might be vessels of wrath or vessels of mercy. It's not my job to know, but I'm pleading with God to save them because I know that only God can save them. And he's the same Paul who wrote verse 13, which says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And he's the same Paul who says in the next set of verses, okay, if everybody who calls on the name of the Lord is going to be saved, how are these people who've never heard the name of the Lord going to call on Him so they can be saved? So we've got to send some preachers out there, and I'm one of them, so I need you to raise money. This is part of what the letter of Romans is about. Raise money so I can go to Spain and tell more people about Jesus. So if we wrestle with verses 22 and 23 and think, what do we do with that? One thing we don't do with that is we don't get comfortable with people being lost. We don't say, well, God's in control and so He'll save who He will and we don't have to worry about it. No, you pray for people to be saved and you send out missionaries and you share the gospel because that's what Paul modeled for us. Paul believed those things and prayed for people to be saved and preached the gospel and went out as a missionary. We don't have to, what I've been saying sort of throughout this, 
um, and in other contexts as well, is what we don't want to do, it's so easy for us to do, what we don't want to do is take one set of verses and use it to cancel out another set of verses. Anytime we do that, we're making a mistake. We, well, our job as Christians is as best as we can, prayerfully, humbly, with the help of the Holy Spirit, to figure out how all of the Bible fits together. How all the verses make sense. And sometimes we get to a point where we say, I can't make sense of it, but I believe that it's all true. I, I, don't, I don't know how to reconcile it all in my mind. I can't draw it all out for you on the whiteboard. I just know that's what God says is true, and I'm going to trust Him. The other thing I want to remind you about as we close is this. The same Paul who wrote these words in verse 23 also wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 these very different words. As I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The things he has written in Romans chapter 9 are important, and they are true because they are part of God's Word, but they are not of first importance. That's why I said we can disagree about them. We can't disagree over whether or not Jesus died for our sin. If we disagree on that, one of us is not a Christian. We can't disagree over whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. If we disagree on that, one of us is not a Christian. We can disagree over Romans 9. We all need to affirm that it's God's Word, that it's in the Bible, that it's true, but we're probably not all going to agree on how to understand it. That's okay. Our job, again, is just to humbly, prayerfully ask the Lord to help us understand all of the Bible, to believe all the Bible, to trust everything that He says to us in the Bible, and to be humble enough sometimes to say, I don't know how all that works. And I know enough about God. He's shown himself faithful enough that even when he says something that I don't quite know what to do with, I know to trust him. And I know that if it comes down to him or me, I'm wrong and he's right. And sometimes I just have to be willing to say, I I don't know. I don't know, but I know that he's good. I know he's merciful. I know he's faithful. And that's where I'm going to plant my flag. Let's pray.